0: Let's open with prayer. From Psalm 129. Since our youth they have often attacked us, let Israel say. Since our youth they have often attacked us, but they have not prevailed against us. Plowmen plowed over our backs and they made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the ropes of the wicked. Let all who hate Zion be driven back in disgrace. Let them be like grass on the rooftops, which withers before it grows up, and can't even fill the hands of the reaper or the arms of the one who binds sheaves. Then none who pass by will say, may the Lord's blessings be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Amen. I, 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 just, you know, I, I am very fascinated by these psalms these and just kind of the days that we're living in. Which, you know, are the last days. Um, the last days have ever been, have been ever since Jesus ascended into heaven um, and, uh, and will continue until he comes again. But this idea of um, experiencing the, uh, the world's attacks, um, we don't experience a lot of persecution in our country, but other countries, Christians do. Um, but we do experience ridicule sometimes, and we experience mockery and other forms of prejudice uh, sometimes. Um, and uh, and that, that is part of the Christian life. It's part of that take up your cross and follow me. Um, I thought the imagery, imagery in verse 3 is very interesting, talking about plowmen plowing over my back. Um, kind of a little bit of a conflating of the nation, the land that is Israel, with the imagery of the people. You know, and and just this uh, hard work and this this, uh, um, taking advantage of the people is there. Um, But the confidence is still in in the Lord, so. It sort of reminds me of of being whipped on the back the stripes. Yeah, 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 I, I think those go right together. You know, so using the, the imagery of the land, and you know, then you have this person that looks like that. Yeah. 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 Anything else on, on the psalm? Then I'm going to ask the question that I'm going to ask every week, and this one should be really easy. What's one insight or comfort or challenging idea that you held on to from last week? That's exactly what I wanted to hear. Because that was the whole point, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So, does anybody have anything they want to add to that? I really was hoping to hear nothing. <laughs> All right. Then I want to, uh, to really kind of get into this with a bit of a confession. Um, the book of Romans, it's, it's a favorite, it's, it's, it's Paul's biggest work. I mean, you have nothing else that really just develops the theology and proclaims the gospel the way that, that uh, Romans does. And it very much shapes the way that we think about the way that God interacts with us. And, and rightfully so, it is God's word through his apostle. But I do think that there is a prejudice, and that I've held a prejudice for verse chapters one through eight—the part that we just finished. All this stuff that's about you know the gospel and the love of God and Christ Jesus and you know who will rescue me from this body of death and you know more than conquerors in Christ and and, and all of these things. And, and I don't think this is just me. I, I think that a, a lot of Christians really dig Romans 1 through 8. And if we could cut the book off right there, they'd be like, sweet. I mean, that would be a good ending, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Peace. You know, have a great day. But he didn't stop writing there. And uh, I, th- I think that chapters 9 through 16 get a lot of short shrift. And there's some really important stuff in there. There's a lot of really deep theology in this part of the book. So when I was preparing for this, I read this quote. um, uh, It says that Romans 8, 31 through 39, is like a great mountaintop from which one can look back clearly over the terrain covered thus far and rejoice at a high point On the hike through Romans has been reached and I think that sometimes when we get to that part of Romans we're like yeah look back at all of this great stuff but the cool thing about reaching a high point in a hike is yes you can look back and see how far you've come but if you turn the other way you can see what's to come right you can look ahead And looking ahead in Romans 9 through 16, um, there's there's some great stuff that's in store for us. So we do well to remember that Romans is one letter. I think partly because of the way that we handle our Bible readings on Sunday, where we read these pericopes, you know, um, that word really literally means to cut around. We cut out chunks of the Bible, and then we read them on Sunday morning. You know, and we very rarely read anything in its entirety, in terms of what happens on a Sunday morning. That's pragmatic, right? You know, it would take a little bit of a while to to read all of Romans in a worship service. It would probably take a couple hours. That's like a movie. Who has time for that? Um, but uh, um, you know it is one letter and it's, and it's all connected and, and if you wanted to look at it and say what is, what is the golden thread that works its way through the whole thing I would argue that it is this quotation from the, uh, the prophet Habakkuk who we read from today which um, is cited in Romans 1 verse 17 the righteous person will live from faith you know we are righteous because we received it by faith and now having received that gift we are going to live from faith so when we look at this letter there is an aspect to it that is a universal message You know all of this stuff about the righteous receiving uh, God's gifts by faith, and and uh, you know even righteousness being a gift of faith. The message of the gospel that is just so strongly prominent in those first eight chapters—it's—it's universal. But the letter is also written to a specific time and a specific place. It's written in the first century. It's written to Christians in Rome. And there are things going on in that community, in that congregation, or those congregations, however you want to describe what's going on there. And I think that what we're seeing is, as we go from this really broad, universal message of 1 through 8, that in chapter 9, Paul starts to focus a bit more specifically on Rome. Rome. Not that this doesn't apply to us, too, but he's dealing with things specifically in that congregation. And he's articulating the specific implications to those Roman Christians about the universal truth that he's just expounded upon. Does that make sense? So he's he's taking it and saying, you know, we've talked about all this stuff, you know, that's just kind of big and broad and... and and now let's talk about what's going on right there in Rome, in your congregation. Um, so when we look in, in this part of the book, uh, the uh, this this is not me. I I I do not usually like count words and stuff like that. You know. So, um, but the uh, uh, Michael uh, Middendorf, the one who wrote the commentary that I'm leaning on primarily. Um, he went through some of the, the number of times they use some of these words. So you remember early on, I was talking about these dikaio words, these words that are in, in kind of this framework of righteousness or you know being right or righteous. Um, when you break this down, in chapters one through four, those terms come up 39 times. If you come into chapters five and eight, those terms are used 22 times. And if this is a total break and you're going on to something completely different, you would think that that might disappear, but it doesn't. Um, He's becoming more specific, but he's using it in in that context. And so in nine through 11, these words continue to be used. I mean, it's less, it's a dozen times, but that's more than 12 through 16, which only has it four times. You know, he's continuing the idea. Um, Faith and belief. Uh, one through four, 37 times. Five through eight, those two words only come up three times. But in nine through 11, he comes back to this idea of being a community of people living by faith, trusting in Jesus, and that impacting the way that we live so that they get used 16 times and 10 times at the, at the very end. And the idea of living in life, it hardly shows up in the first four chapters of the book. Chapters five through eight, really heavy. Not so much in 9 through 11. And then it picks up a little bit again at the very end as you know, he's, he's leading them out of the book. So what Paul is doing is he's using the second half of the book to apply the main themes, of especially 1 through 4, to the Roman congregation. Because in that Roman congregation, it, it's, it's not monolithic. You know our experience of the church tends to be that of Gentiles. You know, I mean, yeah, we all came from Adam and Eve and all of that good stuff. And so we're, you know, connected to that, that Jewish thread that way. But, you know, Northern Europe, I mean, pretty much through and through. Yeah, be in the bed, as I look around the room, that's, True for most of you, with one outstanding exception. Um, but uh, your people didn't come from Northern Europe, or car, did they? No, they're Asian, right? Um, but uh, uh, you know, in Rome, they have people who are very solidly Jewish. And they have people who are very, very Gentile. And as you read through Paul's epistles, this is a common theme. You read through the book of Acts. This is one of the struggles that the church had. What what is the relationship between these Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians? And that's what Paul is going to turn to specifically in chapters 9 through 11. Because there's a separation that's involved with this. You know, the Jewish people before Jesus, you know, were, well, they are God's chosen people. And there was the sense of us and them. And they were to be kept separate. And now in Christ, those two paradigms no longer apply. What do you do with that? How, how does a Gentile believer relate to the Jewish believer? I mean, we've had 2,000 years to work on this, um, you know, so maybe this doesn't seem like such a big deal. But you know, the, the idea of um, ethnic differences is still kind of a big deal in our communities and in the church. And, you know, and as we think about how we deal uh, with people from, from different cultures, I think that we're going to hear some things that apply to that for us today. So if you were to break the book of Romans into basically four parts, but five, because I include chapter 16 as just a conclusion there. In chapters 1 through 4, we heard a lot about God's saving righteousness. Righteousness being that key word throughout those chapters and then in chapters five through eight, uh, God gives life in and through Jesus Christ. And then nine through 11, um, the righteousness of God in Israel. So how is the righteousness of God apply among God's people? And then in 12 through 15, you know, from the life that God gives to the life a believer lives. A little bit of a rhyme there. Um, I did not come up with that. So if we were to look at you know how these break up, the next section of the letter is 9 through 11. And um, it is a, a whole unit, those three chapters. And uh, I, some people have actually argued that this is the key part of the letter. Um, I, I disagree with that. Um, I didn't say that it's not an important part of the letter. Uh, I I do think that it's this life of faith that receives God's righteousness that actually goes through the whole book that's key to the the letter. Um, But uh, um, some people will will look at this and say, no, this is what it's all about. It's really about this reconciliation and, you know, who is the church, how do we live in relationship with each other, and and all of that type of stuff. and just as you know anytime you're dealing with opinions there are other people who are like you know this is so out of character with the rest of the book you just you pluck it out who cares which i find fascinating too um you know as people who are like you know you know god's word uh you know we, we stand on god's word and we, we take it seriously and literally and, and and all of this and you know some people are like yeah we don't need that yeah. we let our violence of it with god's word yeah yeah um, I, I really think that this idea of talking about how do we relate to people from other cultures is actually really important in the church right now. You know, I look at the communities that we live in and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty lily white on the whole. Uh, Hudson is something like, you know, 98.6% Caucasian. You know, Stowe is a little less than that, um. But we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have these, these different backgrounds and different skin tones, and it is part of our national conversation, too. And when, uh, um, and I'm not sure that the church is handling this conversation well at the moment. Um, there's a conference that's coming up in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod uh, about evangelism. AND OVER HALF OF IT IS DEVOTED TO CRITICAL RACE THEORY AND DEBUNKING IT. I'M LIKE, I'm, how, HOW IS THAT DEALING WITH EVANGELISM? YOU KNOW, um, I, I'm, I'M KIND OF CONCERNED ABOUT WHAT I'M SEEING IN THE COUNTRY AND IN THE WORLD. YOU KNOW, I'M READING ABOUT ANTI-SEMITISM BEING ON THE RISE. Um, I don't know, when I, when I was a kid, you know, we were taught that you know, it's not about the color of the person's skin, it's the content of the character and all of that. And, uh, you know, and as Christians this idea that, um, that we all come from the same parents in the beginning, that we're all created, that we're all people, that, that really doesn't leave a lot of room for you know, this hatred of, of people from other cultures. The exception being people from Chicago, um, but uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding about that. <laughs> um, yeah you know and some of the, some of this is cultural um, and there I think that there is a fear of the unknown and, and a fear of, of difference mm-hmm. um, i but, find i don't wanna, i don't want to offend somebody unknowingly yeah i don't want to you know say something because i'm ignorant of the way that they live, that I should say something that's insulting and not even realize it. So I keep my mouth shut. Yeah, um, I, I sometimes think it might be better to um, naively give the offense and then apologize and learn. If, if, you know I'm, given I mean? the, if I'm given the opportunity. Right, right. That's... But I, I, what I'm seeing right now is a, uh, it's almost like a doubling down on, you know, we don't want to deal with this. You know, or, you know, it, it's become so political. Right. Um, you know, so, the critical race theory thing, um, it's actually an economic uh, idea, and it, it does flow out of Marxism, and, uh, um, and like Marxism, it actually has some good points in terms of what's wrong with this world. And like Marxism, it totally misses the point on what's the right answer in in terms of what do we do about this. Um, But I don't understand why we're so fearful of it and why it is so uh, all-encompassing in the the conversations uh, in the church. It started thousands of years ago. We just haven't gotten over it. things that are different, people that are different. And if you're different from me, and you're right, that makes me wrong. We've got this idea that there's only one right, and it has to be me, or else I'm wrong. I don't wanna be wrong. Yeah, but I would submit that the message of the Bible uh, is that we're not that different, and that there's a lot that's exactly the same, and that we have the exact same hope and so when I see evil and violence and racism and all that in the world, I just kind of shrug my shoulders and, eh, it's kind of what I expect. But it really, it, it really bothers me when I see it, you know, in the church and I see, you know, uh, preachers and you know, leaders of the church kind of doubling down on this. It's, it's not good. Is this the message of Satan, you know, dividing us. Uh, so this is, this is an important part of the letter. I'm sorry. Well, probably, I mean, probably, I think it's because, I think it's because of giving, uh, giving the priority, like set up your own priority. It's like uh, set up the priority um, for the media, like what the, what the media mm-hmm. is feeding us. Basically, 90% of the cases, the media is feeding us like crap. But, if we want to set up our priority on the Bible, that will give us the right message. Yeah. So, I yep. think that's a, that makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a, uh, an old saying about a Native American uh, chief uh, who had become a Christian. He talks about how in his life it was like there were two dogs that were fighting inside of him. You know, and, uh, um, and somebody asked him, well, which one's winning? And he says, it's the one that I feed. Um, and uh, we can feed our fears and our prejudices and, and those kinds of things, or we can be fed on the bread of life and the hope that we have in Christ and the reconciliation that he calls us to. And um, yeah, I, I, I've said before, and I will continue to say that I think that one of the biggest idols in the church, one of the biggest false gods in the church is politics. That we put our hope and our trust in the power of politics to get people to live the way that we want them to live rather than the power of the gospel that transforms people's lives. And uh, and I also think that sometimes um, we don't trust the power of the word to actually change people's lives. Yeah. And we want to win. If there are two or three or four different groups, we want to be one that wins and comes out on top. But the thing is, Carolyn, we have. Right? In... We're, we're, we're afraid yes. that these other people are gonna gain on us and then we will lose some of it because so much of it comes down to politics and who's winning and who has the power, even in the church, which is a terrible thing. Yeah. yeah in in christ we've won the victory yeah we you know we've won because jesus won you know and it's like we don't trust that well but we as individuals we have not always won as groups okay Got this horrible thing as humans that we want to win. We want to be on the winning team, and so we look to see whether anybody's getting ahead of us. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So the lament about politics is, is really old, right? It, yeah. And you think of those uh, passages from the Old Testament: "Where is your hope? Is it in Egypt?" Right. Uh, you know, and, and it's the same thing. Yeah. You're putting your hope in power, political power. Ultimately, yeah. violence at the back end mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, because that's what we can see. Yeah, and, you know, and I think of you know, you know, we live by faith and not by sight, and and all of these, you know, take up your cross and follow me, and you know, I think of the the beatitudes and how countercultural they are, you know, you know blessed are the poor in spirit. What? Blessed are the meek. Yeah we're called to a very different life. And uh, I think that um, a lot of what's behind what Paul is going to talk about when he's dealing with uh, the church in Rome and this dynamic that, that's there is you know, rooted in, you know, we see this life very differently, or at least we should, you know, if we're trusting in God's promises and, and not being fearful. Um, so, um, when we look at, at, um, at 9 through 11, this does deal with the character of God and the way that he works among his people. Uh, it, it, it's going to talk about how he uh, works with those whom he elected, the Jews, and also those he calls, the Gentiles. And, and I want to be really clear, just as I was in the first part, this is about what God is doing. You know, all of this roots back to what is God doing? And, and so when we look at the focal themes of, of chapters nine through 11, we, we start with God, because Paul continues to be focused on, on God's work, not on what people do. Because it's God who transforms those relationships. Uh, it's gonna focus on God's word. 69% of the Old Testament quotes in the book of Romans are in these three chapters. You know, he, he is hitting this hard. And I think part of it is because he's talking about Israel and he's talking about these promises that were given to Israel that apply to Israel. And, and I think he's going to do something interesting with who exactly is Israel. That it's not so much about ethnicity as it is about faith. And then, um, then this next focus is on God's people, uh, especially regarding how God works among us through his word. And that, that's the part that's really going to deal with the identity of Israel. And, um, and remember that the, the congregation that he is writing to here is a mix of Jews and Gentiles. And they were not always at peace with each other. This section contains some of the uh, most difficult theology in the book. Um, And we're going to tease it apart. And I really think that this has to be taken as a whole. And and so these three chapters out of 16, they they make up about 20% of the letter. And for next week, I I would like it if you would read chapters 9 through 11. just to get that bigger context. Because we we, we, we always I, I'm really tempted. It, you know, you've seen how I do this, where I just, you know, here's this word, and let's look at this word and look closely at this one thing. But it, it's part of the bigger picture. And I think that we'll we'll miss a lot if we don't do that with this part. So, any questions before we jump into the, the text? All right, then Romans 9, verses one through five. I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all. Praised forever. Amen. We're going to hit a couple of amens uh, in this uh, in this chapter. Uh, these little, almost like doxological statements. Um... I, I would point out that uh, the translation there is the, uh, the Christian Standard Bible. Have any of you heard of the Christian Standard Bible? Um, all right, a little bit of... You know, the, the, the history of the, the translation of, of the, uh, the Bible, um, You know, you, coming into English, you've got the King James Version in the 1600s, and that became the authorized version that was used... All over English speaking for the next, um, what would that be? Um, 300 years, right? 1600s to the 1900s. Um, there were some attempts at more modernized translations, um, but nothing really happened until like the 1930s. And it was the Americans that really got that going because, you know, why would we want to do anything the same as anybody else? Um, but uh, um, early on, there was a, a, a group. Uh, Baptists who did the Holman Christian standard Bible and, uh, and there were some problems with it and then after that you got the revised standard version and some people took exception with that and you know and then we get the, the NIV and the English standard version and the new revised standard version and the new King James version and you know, all these different versions and uh, in that mix um, this uh, this translation I had never heard of uh, was put together in... i got to look again. Um, it's copyrighted 2018. Um, and, uh, and there were revisions done in 2020. Um, and basically, what they did was they got together scholars from multiple uh, denominations. And they used the... Uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible as kind of their base, but then they did a whole new translation. And uh, I, I heard about this through Michael Card's podcast, and you know, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then I went to the um, pastor's meeting uh, last, well, last month, and um, one of the, the guys there said that his congregation has changed to this translation. You know, I've told I've told you before that I find the English standard version very true to the Greek, but very clunky to read. You know, the NIV of 1984 was very easy to read, and it was pretty true to the Greek and the Hebrew. This is in in that same type of a vein. Um, very good translation, and uh, I'm going to play with this. Um, and uh, I, I think that in the new year, I'm, I'm don't hold me to this yet, but uh, I think I'm gonna do like a read-through of the whole Bible uh, and invite people to join me. And this is gonna be the translation that, that I'm gonna use. Um, I, I've not done a lot with it yet, but I, I've been impressed so far. Um, it, it's just weird serendipity about the way that it came into my attention. Um, there was a professor, do you remember Andy Steinman? When we were at Ann Arbor? He's a Hebrew, yeah, Yeah. he's a Hebrew professor and he worked on this. Uh, This has actually been endorsed by the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. And uh, it doesn't get much more conservative than than, than them. Um, um, But uh, you'll you'll see some of that. All right, anyhow. uh, uh, When we, we look at this beginning to chapter nine, Um, What is the proper emotion toward those who are separated from Christ? What do you see here? How does Paul feel about his brothers and sisters who are not believing in Jesus? Sorrow and anguish? Yeah. Sorrow, anguish—you um, know—the the, the idea that you, you might grieve over people who are are, are separated from Jesus. Um, the people who are um, the people who are separated from Jesus. I mean, this this is a question. Uh, is that like they don't receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ? It means they don't believe in him. Okay. They don't trust that he is their savior. Okay. You know, so in this context, Paul, as a, a Jewish man, is talking about you know, his fellow Jewish believers. Not believers in Jesus, but people who believe in Judaism. And, and he's grieving over them because ultimately, they've rejected the Messiah that God had promised. And, and I... I I don't know, I'm fascinated by that compassion that he seems to have for them. I, I don't know that I always feel that towards people who are lost. And I don't know that the world experiences that type of compassion from the church. You know, I, I've mentioned this book, UnChristian uh, a few times in here, and one of the ideas that the world has about the church is that we're judgmental it's because we are, um, it's just the reality of who, who we are as, as sinners, but uh, that's what the world experiences when they look at us in, in the way that, um, that we interact with them sometimes. That we're looking down on them from a position of superiority. Paul comes at this very differently. You know, he says, "I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying." Um, you know, kind of this idea of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, witnessing um, with His own uh, Spirit, uh, with His conscience. Um, you know, that uh, um, He has this this sorrow, and it's, it's a deep and, and a great sorrow, um, and that uh, uh, it's this just this, this this endless pain. Uh, the Greek says uh, in his heart um he's heartbroken um I think that's a different starting point when we think about how do we share the gospel with people you know it's not you know hey we've got it all right and you better get over here um uh, it, it, it's, it's something that actually cares about the, the person very much and, and meets people where they're at. You know, and, and so you know, he, he has this, this anguish and this, this sorrow, so much so that he says, I wish that I could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the, their benefit. He's basically saying, I would rather that I go to hell if that's what it would take for my brothers and sisters to come to faith. The, the word in the, uh, uh, in the Greek is that he would be anathema. Have you heard that word before? I mean, that's not a small word. That's not, you know, I wish some bad things. I mean, this is, you know, burned up, cast out, gone, damned. And he's like, I, that, that's... That's the ends that I would go to, to save people. I have not met many Christians, and I count myself in that group, that have that that kind of deep desire and compassion for the lost. And I'm not saying that to make anybody feel bad or anything like that, but I think it's something that's worth thinking about. Especially in, in our day and in our culture, where you kinda go along and get along, right? We, we have this very pluralistic society. You know, the, the overall idea in our culture is that all religions are the same. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've talked with parents who have said, yeah, my kid went to name your religion, but at least they believe something. What's the value in believing a lie? You know, and and that's, you know, kind of where Paul is when when he's dealing with these people, that he has this this deep care for them. And part of that is rooted in he knows where they came from. You know, so when, when you know somebody who was very active and alive in the faith, and then they walk away from it, doesn't that feel painful? Have you, have you experienced what I'm talking about? You know somebody that they had a vibrant faith at some point in their life, and then they, they leave it? You know, he, he says, you know, look at what the Israelites had. Look at the, look at the text. What, what did they have? They are Israelites, and to them belong, starting in verse 4, there. What do you see? The glory, the covenants, uh, the promises, the giving of law, the tables of Israel. Yeah. The genealogy. Yeah. They belong to that. They, there is there is an adoption that's involved here because we all come you know by a type of adoption you know through faith, um, but it was theirs. God chose them to be His people to be a light to the world. You know, wow, and and these amazing things that they had. You know, the glory. R- remember when God led the people out of Israel. Um, you know, and uh, there's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You remember this in the book of Exodus? You know, I mean, that, that's something. You know, that, that's part of their heritage that at some point in the life of their, their, you know, their ancestors, God literally dwelt in their midst in the tabernacle. And, you know, is God with us? Look right there. Is the pillar there? Yes, it is. Okay, God's with us. These are the people who had the temple, and then when Solomon dedicated the temple, it was just all of a sudden filled with this amazing smoke as God comes into it. You know, think about the, the, those glorious things and, and all of the things that God did for them. You know, they're the ones with the, the covenants. You know, whether it's you know Noah's or, or whether it's Abraham's or whether it's Moses' or David's. This is, this is their life. All these promises that God gave to their family. you know, And, and you have the, the, the giving of, of the law. I mean, receiving the Ten Commandments, it, it, I mean, is this a big deal? Absolutely. God revealing the, the way that he wants his people to live. It, it, it also, you know, what righteousness in the, this life looks like in, in terms of our our behavior and our activity, um, he gave them worship. Uh, the word here, uh, it, it uh, it's the root word for liturgy. It's not just talking about, you know, I love Jesus and I go through my life. He's talking about coming together, singing hymns and, and praises and, and hearing the word and God delivering his This this all flows from them. You know, at some time, you know, go through our worship service and see how much is rooted in the Old Testament. How many of these passages, you know, think about when we we come to, uh, to communion. The Sanctus, holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth is full of your glory. What's that from? That's from Isaiah, isn't it? Isaiah comes into the temple and he sees the Lord enthroned. You know, th- this, this is all from them. Um, from them uh, come the promises. What promises? Messiah. What are God's promises? A Messiah. A Messiah, yeah. And through that Messiah? Salvation. Yeah. This, this, this is amazing stuff. Um, uh, from them, uh, the, uh, the uh, CSB uh, translates it the, uh, the ancestors. Um, other translations will do it the, uh, the patriarchs. Some will do it um, you know, the fathers. Uh, it, it, very literally, it would be the fathers. But the idea that all of these heroes of the faith you know, you start with Adam and Eve, you know, Abel, Seth, Enoch. You just kind of work your way through. You know, these these amazing people. You know, God did amazing things for them. That's that's their heritage. And and then ultimately, the Christ according to the flesh, or, or by physical descent, the Christ. You know, and. Uh, um, and then it makes a pretty important claim uh, about who that Christ is, who is God overall, praised forever. Uh, amen. I think what Paul is saying here is you know, you lost something. God had given you something really great, and you've lost it. And how do you not have compassion on people who are lost, or have lost their treasure? There was a little storm uh, in Florida this past week, right? You know, um, the the news report that I read this morning said dozens of people killed, which uh, I'm actually thankful that it's perhaps a a lower number than it might have been. but a huge amount of property damage. And people who lost everything. And doesn't that just tug at your heart when you look at people who their home is gone? And then you start thinking a little bit more deeply about what does that mean? Uh, You know, it's not just the roof and and the walls, Um, the teddy bear, the family pictures, the books that they loved, you know, all of, all, all of those things are gone. And doesn't that just pull at your heart? And these are, these are things. And Paul looks at Israel and says, you lost all of the greatest gifts that God gave you. You walked away from them. And that's going to be his starting point for how do you how do you relate to these other people and i think compassion is a huge watchword for us when we deal with people so all right we got to wrap up we get to have a baptism um katie hall is is the mom and uh, uh those of you who've been here for a long time you'll know her as katie del santer and uh, um, Uh, their first little baby, and uh, we get to baptize. uh, I'm blanking on the baby's name. Good thing it'll be printed for me in there. So, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you, praise you that we could be in your house today. We thank you for the incredible gifts that you gave to uh, Israel. Israel with that first covenant and, and all of those things. And we thank you that you've included us, that you've adopted us into those blessings and those gifts too. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to rejoice in what you have done for Israel, and that includes us. In Jesus' name, amen.